Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. When it appears that everything is wrong with the world, we know we're dealing with a worldview issue. Science shows us our worldview creates our world. But what creates our worldview? Welcome to Kindred. This is Lisa Reagan, and today I'm talking with Marilyn Schlitz, the social scientist and field-based researcher of human consciousness who will answer the questions, what is our worldview? How is it formed? And what does science show us about how to shift our worldview? Kindred World's nonprofit work and vision of a wisdom-based wellness-informed society has been supported by the Worldview Literacy Facilitator training I received from Marilyn at the Institute of Noetic Sciences over a decade ago. I will include links below this podcast to resources for this program's training, as well as Kindred's resources for our ongoing work with Four Arrows and Kindred World's president, Darsha Narvais, on our indigenous worldview. So welcome, Marilyn. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Lisa. Glad to be here. So we have some really fun territory to cover, and it is on Worldview, which uh, you helped to create the program at the Institute of Noetic Sciences at the as the president and a researcher uh, a few years ago. And I was also trained in that program as the facilitator. So we're going to help people understand this crucial term for our time and how do we know what our worldview is and that we actually have one. So can you just help us um, wade into that territory? I, I will throw out that I remember when we first started studying worldview literacy and uh, you introduced learning the difference between an opinion, belief, and fact. And I thought, really? And now we're in this post-truth alternative fact world. And that seems like a good place to start. <laughs> well, that happened pretty fast. And that's kind of astonishing, really, to think that, um, you know, we operate within these different bubbles, really. I, I think I would start with this distinction between ontology and epistemology. So those are big words, but our ontology is that basis of reality. You know, what is so? And the epistemology is how we know what we know. So what are the different methods and means by which we try to understand the nature of reality? So understanding and navigating both our epistemology and our ontology becomes important because we can see that, you know, we can meet in a public sphere. Uh, maybe it's a hospital or school system and people are, you know, applying their energies to um, a shared goal, but they might be coming at it from very different epistemologies and ontologies. It's almost like we're moving through different realities together simultaneously. And it's a little mind blowing and a little science fiction-y and yet it is what is so. We are now at this time where 
you know, we know that there are multiple cultures, there are multiple uh, ways of engaging reality. You know, we have now achieved these remarkable accomplishments in terms of having an orbiting space station and all these great photos that we're getting from these telescopes looking at, you know, the depths of space. And we also know that you know, this is a time of cloning. So we can, in the course of a day in a Petri dish, really create new forms of life. And all of those are based in this kind of physical material model. You know, there is a world out there and that is the reality. There is a world out there. And yet we know from our own beliefs and experiences that it, it might be a little more complicated than that. And so how do we begin to think about not only that reality out there, but how there is a reality within here and that shapes how we're able to perceive things. And so that's what I would say, you know, really is the basis of a worldview. So when you and I first worked together 10 or 12 years ago, and I encountered that that first exercise in uh, opinion, belief, and fact. That, that was just part of you know, beginning to, to understand that it was possible to, to not know when you, what territory you were in. But then the program also went into understanding that, as you said, this gets to be science fiction-y and complicated, but our multiple intelligences that we don't really talk about a lot in our culture and how we can know. And some of this gets to be really exciting and starts to transform who we think we are as human beings, I think in a very exciting way. So one of those questions is kind of remedial about facts, opinions, and beliefs, but it seems so relevant right now as we have is January 6th uh, committee hearings going on and the arguments uh, taking up airspace over what is real, even if there's a video to show us. And then, <laughs> and then how do we know, as you were just pointing to, what else do we have to work with to know what is real with these multiple intelligences? One of the really interesting things that's emerged, I think, in the realm of cognitive psychology you know, really in the last 20 years, but more recently it's come to the forefront, which is the idea of our cognitive biases and the ways in which there are these filters. So taking a step back and recognizing that our worldview is like a lens of perception through which we see the world. And it's like if you put on these glasses and suddenly maybe it's like virtual reality glasses, suddenly you're seeing things in a different way and engaging the world in a different form. Uh, and so what happens is our understanding of that world out there is shaped by our culture, our families, our education, our status in our lives, like the progression from being a small child to a senior citizen, you know, all of those experiences move us through different lenses of perception. So our worldviews shift as we age, but there are these core metaphysical assumptions about what is true that can remain constant throughout our lives. And so what you talked about as that objective world out there really defines the 
the materialist world we live in and it defines how we approach reality. So if we think everything is material and physical, then the only ways we can know something is to touch it or taste it or measure it or manipulate it somehow. And yet when you talk about these multiple ways of knowing, we're also aware that our worldview, our worldview can be informed by, you know, the, the nature of our intuitions. Um, is there something that we intuitively feel or our gut reactions? And these things are very important. Or are we um, visually oriented or auditorily oriented? Or, you know, is it about reading and writing for us? Um, all of those things influence what we determine to be facts. And I want to go back to this idea of these cognitive biases because it's really almost impossible to see the world as it is or to experience the world as it is because we have all these blockages. Um, maybe we make assumptions about a person's skin color and that then leads us to a very quick reaction about you know, what we should think about that person. And maybe it's about, you know, olfactory things. Sometimes there are foods that we really don't like because they trigger associations that come from our, you know, our old brain. Um, all of those things influence how we perceive the world. And what I like to think about is this concept of worldview literacy and basically the notion that we can learn about worldviews and we can teach about worldviews. There is a kind of literacy there that we can communicate to others. And so that's really what I've been, you know, looking at over, you know, a series of decades now. How do we learn about our worldview? If we're in a protective mindset, or rigid authoritarian mindset, uh, we may not have, and there are degrees of this, and on any given day, I could be in that mindset, or, you know, in the morning I am, and in the afternoon I'm not, I'm owning that, but it's uh, the practices of becoming aware of your mindset, and then this metacognition piece of your worldview, how do we do that? Yeah, I think it's hard, really. Um, but I think, first of all, there is this basic awareness, you know, maybe I'm not seeing things in their entirety. And that comes with a kind of humility. So instead of having an arrogance and an assumption that I know everything, you know, stepping back and being a little bit cautious, a little bit more humble, and then recognizing that even if we feel like we have some mastery over our reactiveness, um, you know, we become this metacognitive um, capacity generator. Uh, we might then be in our cars going through traffic and somebody cuts us off. So what's the immediate reaction? That amygdala kicks in and we can become very arrogant. We can become very judgmental and we can also become very aggressive. So, you know, road rage is something that, you know, people describe and that it's all too familiar in this time and in this space that we live in. 
Um, so the first thing I think is to slow down, to recognize that we have reactivities um, and to begin to posit like what's going on with that other person. You know, maybe they're in some kind of distress that we don't know about. So if you can come from this place of humility, and I actually like to think about something like road rage as, you know, a, a spiritual practice. It gives us an opportunity to check our own reactive tendencies, to take a deep breath. Breathing is so fundamental to a lot of these practices. And just position ourselves so that we can see things from the other person's point of view. I think that's just like the fundamental first step for all of us. So right now, I, I remember uh, hearing you speak about weapons of mass distraction in our culture. And we seem to have a lot stacked against us culturally demanding our attention. What is the influence our culture is having on our worldview and the way it's shaped right now? Well, one thing we know is that information is accelerating. And in fact, the amount of information that we're acquiring in the course of this day transcends everything that we, we've acquired in the nature of human history. So we're bombarded by all these new factoids and experiences, images. Um, you know, you can think about the, the rate of commercials, for example, how much we're bombarded by those. Even if we think we're not, we go shopping and there are all these billboards and um, the front stand that pulls our attention. So recognizing that our attention and our motivations drive where we place our focus becomes important. So recognizing that we're bombarded by all this new information coming at us at an accelerated pace uh, can be absolutely overwhelming. Um, and it's very difficult in that context to center and to begin to understand what is our authentic perception? What is it that is true for us? And to begin to calibrate that epistemology, how am I knowing what is true when there's so much stuff coming at me? And how can I begin to calibrate that? So this idea of learning, I think is very, very challenging because we have all these biases and we have this amygdala brain that blocks our capacity to move into the prefrontal cortex. So our brain is both very reactive and very contemplative. We have an ability to pull back. And that's that metacognitive thing you're talking about. It's like this larger way in which we can begin to see what's forming our opinions, what we're uh, able to constitute as facts for ourselves, and how our worldview, that lens of perception, influences all of that. So again, I go back to humility and the idea that we can slow down. And, you know, sometimes we know things because our life experience gives us that information. So those can be very fastly calibrated. 
But there's often the case where we're forming opinions out of previous experiences that are not relevant to our current experience. And so how can we just pause long enough to um, reflect on that? So those are you know, a couple of the basic um, foundational steps, I think, to beginning to understand worldview and to begin to understand how we can become more aware of what we're not aware of. Becoming aware of what we are not aware of. This seems really important right now as uh, the Kindred Fellowship Program, for example, is diving into um, the possibility of centering childhood in social justice. So we would have these baselines of wellness uh, restored, which they don't currently exist in the United States, which is why we have no public policy supporting family, mother, and infant wellness compared to all other um, developed nations. Uh, and you can see the kindredfellows.org um, site and, and see the students who are joining us now to learn about um, these, these really crucial pieces as they head out in the world to become change makers. We want to create and help to support um, their impulses to create change without, uh, as, as we talked about earlier, without um, this uh, being the hamsters in the wheel and you, you think you're really going somewhere and you're going real fast, you're going real fast, but without this awareness that there's a wheel. <laughs> that you're on um you're not really going where you think you are and then we get burned out as activists and uh, yeah and that's the voice of experience uh, speaking there so we so we're trying to look for more sustainable ways of uh change making and cultural transformation and taking that into our own uh, personal processes so can you maybe speak to right now this uh richard tarnas has said I just want to, before we, we go on to something else, I just want to really emphasize again, uh, Richard Tarnas says, worldviews create worlds. I just want to spend just a minute just saying, how critical is this understanding that we have a worldview? I think it is the most fundamental skill set that we can acquire. And, you know, then the question is, how do we break out of our steady state? If we are living in this ontological bubble and we aren't able to move beyond it, so the bubble is containing us, uh, that can lead us to you know, make missteps along the way, um, to assume that the world is something other than what it is, because we're trying to shape that world based on our own assumptions, our beliefs, uh, our previous experiences, the, the life we've grown up in. So my own work has been to understand the nature of worldviews and to look at that from a variety of different cultural and uh, religious, spiritual, academic perspectives. And so in order to kind of broaden my own worldview, I, I really appreciate the concept of curiosity and this notion of a, a growth mindset. So again, how can we cultivate the capacity to move out of our ontological bubble, to recognize that there are these multiple epistemologies and ways of knowing about the world, and that in that process, we 
can be imbued with a greater appreciation for all the pluralistic ways in which we can engage reality. So I worked with a team and we uh, explored the nature of this worldview literacy concept by looking at how it is that people can break out. So uh, what are the, the facilitating factors that allow people to begin to see things in a different way and to bring about this kind of humility? And we uh, did this through uh, interviews with 60 masters from different world traditions. Uh, so we interviewed them in a very systematic way. We had a team of people who were coding those uh, transcripts and interviews so that we could come up with themes across these different traditions. And so the very first question is, you know, how do we shift our worldview? How do we broaden our worldview? And again, it's really hard. This is not a simple task. Um, and it requires discipline, uh, effort, motivation, all of these things. And sometimes it can happen very quickly that we have some kind of experience that disrupts that steady state. So maybe it's the death of a loved one or the loss of a job, a personal illness. Uh, maybe it's something ecstatic. Maybe it's some kind of out-of-body experience or perhaps a near-death experience, perhaps a kind of ecstasy experience. People are talking about the overview effect now where you know these astronauts come back from space uh, and begin to see the world in a different way. And you know, how can we wake people up without having to go walk on the moon in order to have these experiences? So the first thing is to recognize that, you know, there are these difficulties that present themselves in our life, um, even catastrophic things that can really make us feel disempowered. And yet through the lens of worldview, we can begin to see these as opportunities. They are disruptions from something that limits our capacity to see. So once we can begin to stand back and look at you know, what are often you know, very um, negative things in our life. And we can begin to see that this is an opportunity for us to engage in a new way in it, with a different perspective. So that was kind of the first thing. And then you know, people can have these shifts in worldview or these eureka moments or you know, something that really feels disruptive. And then they can go right back to their steady states. Because again, there are these cognitive biases that limit our capacity to change. So it takes effort then to begin to broaden out of and to become curious about the potentials. So that cultivating of curiosity and our wanting to explore, wanting to be in some kind of adventurous process becomes kind of the second stage of this um, where we become seekers. And the pitfall of that is that we can get into this endless loop of forever seeking. And then we haven't really grounded ourselves, and we don't feel that sense of, you know, stability. So how do we begin to move toward um, what can be very destabilizing? If we have always thought the world was this way and suddenly we're seeing it as something different, you know, that can be hard. And so people then are 
encouraged based on our interviews and ultimately then 2000 surveys that we did, um, people can begin to take on a practice. And that allows us to sort of engage in something that gives us support in the midst of this destabilization. So what is a practice? I mean, people described all kinds of things as a transformative practice that really helped them to engage this expanded worldview. And uh, there were kind of five elements we identified in the course of looking at a transformative practice, whether it was somebody sitting in a meditation or gardening or running, uh, spending time in nature. All of those things can become a practice if we bring these five qualities to it. So the first thing is intention. I bring the intention to foster a worldview that allows me to see things from a broader perspective and also to become more um, stable in our own ability to grapple with all these weapons of mass distraction that you talked about. So intention becomes extremely important. And yet we know that, you know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intention. And how many of us, you know, set New Year's resolutions and then, you know, a day, a week, a month later, we've forgotten we even did that. So intention alone isn't enough, but it is a necessary prerequisite. Then the second step is attention. And where are we placing our attention? Is it on the glass half empty or the glass half full? And becoming aware that we can choose that becomes really important. And this goes back to the idea of these cognitive biases. So if we're operating on autopilot and all these influences are affecting us and we're driven by the materialist uh, impulses, that society is pulling us toward, it becomes very difficult. But once we can recognize that, first of all, we have these biases, and that in order to see past them, we need to slow down and train our attention so that we can begin to perceive the multiplicities of how we know what we know, so our uh, epistemologies, and ultimately the ontologies, because there may well be more than one absolute reality. You know, it, it may be that absolute reality is made up of this multiplicity of views and facts and, you know, perspectives and assumptions. The third piece is to um, have some kind of uh, routine. So how do we begin to train our brain and our bodies and our awarenesses to stay uh, awake and to be informed? How do we do that? And so building new muscles, just like we'd go to a gym and we'd work out, we can begin to train these neural pathways in our brains and to recognize the plasticity that allows us to begin to perceive in new ways. The fourth piece is uh, consistent across all of the, the, the masters that we interviewed, and that is guidance. And it's not really easy to do this stuff on our own. And 
you know, how is it that we begin to recognize that there are people who have been on this path before us? Um, so maybe it comes from a book or maybe it comes from a podcast or maybe it comes from, you know, sitting with a teacher. Um, all of those things can offer us a kind of guidance. And it's also clear that it's not only guidance that comes from outside of ourselves. There's this inner guidance. And so as we can begin to calibrate our own intuitions and the multiple ways in which we learn and we can begin to see things with a, um, a kind of imbued nature, uh, this becomes a kind of internal guidance system that, you know, is that North Star that, that propels us or that golden thread that pulls us. Uh, and finally, there is this concept of surrender that, you know, and this is particularly true when we think about change and we want to be change makers. Sometimes things are happening in the world that we can't influence. And maybe it requires just stepping back and appraising what is so and surrendering to the idea that, you know, there are pieces of this puzzle we can begin to affect change in, and there are places that we can't. And so to release ourselves from the burden of thinking that we can fix it all and that there's just this magic wand that we can wave. And then this model that we created um, really involves this shift from the me to the we. But if it's all about the we, we can forget about the me. And that's where you talked about burnout. So how can we cultivate these skills to nurture ourselves, even in the midst of enormous complexities? So just breathing or centering, you know, taking a walk in nature and really appreciating what's around us, you know, practicing gratitude, all of these become wonderful tools for nurturing our own inner life. And then finally, I think this process can be um, like a fractal and we can amplify it in, in the world through the various institutions. So whether it's business or science or education or community organizing, all of that can be informed by recognizing that the catalysts of change come from inside us and give us the capacity to be strong and facile and agile in the face of these enormous changes that we're dealing with. And that we can begin to apply these kinds of insights into those dominant institutions and recognizing that it's not really possible to do this alone. And so, you know, reaching out and finding those communities that may not all look like us, may be informed by different epistemologies and ontologies, but together with that kind of curious mindset, we can begin to uh, affect positive changes. Carolyn, that was just glorious. <clears throat> Thank you so much. That was just fantastic. Um, I do remember one of the pieces that you just now touched on was the community piece. And I know in America, isolation, loneliness, especially among young people, um, is epidemic right there with addiction and depression. And I am wondering 
I just want to articulate that community piece because I do remember uh, in one of the change models from IONS, how do you make something stick? How do you make a change stick for yourself? Uh, whatever it is that you're trying to do. And it seemed like uh, people who were able to go to a space of like-minded people and just be together, uh, that really helped it, the change to stick for yourself. So can you just speak to community for a moment? I think sometimes when we experience a shift in worldview that allows this more um, complex, multifaceted reality, uh, it can feel very lonely. We can feel like, you know, we're the only ones and we're oddballs and, um, you know, we don't have uh, a sangha, a community to rely on. Uh, the one thing I would say is that I don't think the kind of community that is most effective isn't just everybody being like us. It's really fostering the skills for being with people who may be different from ourselves and knowing that we have this capacity to see and to communicate and to engage with people who are you know, different from ourselves. Um, but I do think it's true what you said, you know, people have to get off the pillow or get off of, you know, out of the pew and into the world and moving together with uh, a group who can represent our um, tribe, our um, emerging tribe, a tribe that is of this mindset that we want to see past the biases. We wanna see past the cultural limitations and begin to craft something that is more sustainable and nurturing to you know, the livelihood of all creatures on this planet. And there we go. That's really where I wanted to go with you. <laughs> you know, in the beginning uh, of um, ION's research, I think it was 40 years of human consciousness research that was uh, supported this development of this program. And, and of course the books, I think it's the Living Deeply book that you're referring to. Is yeah. it the Living Deeply book that has the um, masters, uh, the 60 uh, essays in there from the masters interviews. So we lots of great resources. I'll put them all wherever people are finding this podcast. But um, the me to the we and the move from the disconnected worldview or detached competitive worldview into something that is more holistic and sustainable is what IONS was looking at at the time because it was necessary for, and, and even the UN says now we need to shift into what they're calling an indigenous worldview which doesn't mean necessarily indigenous peoples, but indigenous act like you live here. And this is your home and your planet and <laughs> take responsibility for it. Um, so can you speak to that, how important that piece is? And I'll just throw in one of our students um, questioned a speaker recently when we were talking about mindfulness practices. And she said, and in, in candor and honesty, she said, What's on the other side of this? And I thought that was a wonderful question um, to ask. Um, what is on the other side? And how important is this holistic worldview when we get there? I think we can't know the answer to that 
And one of the skill sets that we need is to live with uncertainty and to be able to marvel at the mystery of what is unfolding. So we, we don't really know. And, you know, I, recently I become really um, deeply fascinated by the metaverse and the, the ways in which we can engage in, you know, these virtual realities. And yet, what are people doing with it? Um, there are positive applications of the metaverse. People are using it as a meetup place for this kind of conversation. But a lot of people are using it for very aberrant uh, behaviors. And, you know, that's not helpful. Um, and so how does one pull back from that and put their attention where it can be more positive? So first, I think we don't know and we can't know and we have to cultivate the capacity to be comfortable with that. I will say that for myself, you know, it's a troubling time for civilization and the ways in which the politics have become so fragmented, fragmented and polarized is, is deeply distressing. And we're seeing it not only in the US, but in other countries all over the world where, you know, people just can't be tolerant of others and their own selfishness drives, you know, whatever it is that is motivating them. So first of all, you know, engaging in the mystery, wondering is a beautiful, you know, way of framing things. Uh, and then this intention piece, how can we direct our intention and our motivations and what propels us toward, you know, the greater good. And Sometimes that means just pulling back, turning off the news and, you know, not getting distracted. Sometimes it's putting on, you know, programming that shows us the qualities of a positive engagement with each other and reality. Um, sometimes it involves really standing up and being a force uh, and joining with others to be a greater force. I, at this point, am just um, a bit baffled by some of the decisions that are coming down and that are imposing the will of the government on individual rights. And we see this all over the world. There seems to be this contraction right now and a movement backward. Um, you know, so basic human rights are being trampled on. And so how do we deal with that? And you know, I think it's really important that we have these kinds of conversations, that we acknowledge that it can be very troubling and deeply disturbing. Um, one day I was laying in bed thinking about all of it, and I suddenly had that surrender moment. Like, I can't solve all the problems of the world. I really can't. But what I can do is engage in these kinds of conversations and these threads of discourse that may help to impact, you know, maybe not in this moment, but in the future. And I think your, your motivation towards uh, speaking to the youth and to getting young people to feel inspired and, you know, move beyond hopelessness towards something that is purposeful. And even if it's planting a tree, um, you know, these small gestures can be a big thing. I know Brother David Stendelrest is um, a friend and colleague and esteemed teacher, and he's a 
a Benedictine monk and his practice is gratitude and grateful living. And he had this experience where he went to Africa and he experienced how precious it is to have clean drinking water. And so when he went home to his apartment in New York and turned on the tap and had clean drinking water at his disposal, you know, he was overwhelmed with the wonder of it and this feeling of gratitude. And then he had that for a couple of days. And then, you know, a couple of days later, he turned on the tap and just took it for granted. So he started putting these little yellow stickums all over and as reminders that, you know, he, he was living, you know, in this miracle of clean drinking water and to remember that and to be awed by that. And then he found himself habituating to the stickum notes. So he started moving them around so that they kept his attention on the practice of grateful living. And I think this is important. Like, you know, people have these little bobble headed Buddhas on their dashboard. And you can think, oh, that's just some kind of kitsch, you know, new age thing that people have, but it's also a reminder. So it sits there and it reminds you that you want to live in this state of wonder and gratitude and, um, and awe at the great emerging of the world. And even when it's tragic, to be able to find that little flower growing out of the concrete that we can hold on to. You know, I think all of those are really important. And so then going back to community, you know, when we start to flounder a little, it's good to put our attention on those right actions that are happening and to be able to join forces with that because it can help us to remember these principles of, of practice that come from all the different traditions and that can help stabilize us in the midst of stormy seas. I love that you mentioned the, uh, the Buddha on the dashboard. My son has one in his car and I'm a huge fan of doing what I call leaving myself a breadcrumb trail. So when I go into a place of shock, and it takes a while to come back out of that from whatever news I just read. <laughs> you know, I have a breadcrumb trail in my home or around my house and, uh, you know, places that I'm going to be in my car and they kind of wave at me, you know, hey, hey, remember, remember your way back here. Um, don't get stuck there too long in that place of being uh, just, you know, in shock, um, which is where a lot of us probably spend time these days. But um, so I, I would like to be curious here in our last few moments together and say, what did I miss in, in asking you? What else was there that I, I should have asked and I would like to ask that I'm not asking? What would you like to share? Well, I um, am very appreciative of you and all your efforts and the work you're doing in the world to help create breadcrumbs for all of us. And we all need that. And we do need a Sangha and we need that support that comes from community. And we need to recognize that some days are just crappy. You know, there are bad days and there are setbacks along the, the trail. 
Um, and to have these mindfulness tools, I think are really, really important to have the friendship that comes. Um, and I think this idea of fostering global community can help, can really help us. You know, I, I sometimes look at the political estrangements and I think about, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> my friends in China or my friends in Russia or my friends in, um, oh, you know, the, the most desolate places in, in Africa or Asia. Um, and know that, you know, we are a collective and we can reach out to each other. So people who have access to email can use that technology as a way of connecting or people who have satellite um, shortwave radios, all of those can provide a means of engaging with others so that we can, you know, move forward and I have a course that's offered online. It's called Emerging Worldviews. And it really is about the celebration of, you know, not just diversity, which is a demographic fact, but pluralism. And that notion that in a healthy habitat, you have a lot of different kinds of plants in order to make it, you know, flourish. And so finding those friendships at a global level and really holding to those, you know, so that even if we're feeling isolated, um, we can reach out and find that. So, you know, I've been you know, living in a kind of, I called it, uh, I'm living like a monkette um, in this house. And, you know, my husband comes home, I have my dog, but uh, so I'm not totally in isolation, but I connect in this way, you know, Zoom has been a great ally for me. And I have been able to connect through my work at Sophia University with this global population. And in creating curriculum around, you know, transpersonal philosophies. So we are bigger than our individual self. And to the extent we can remember that. Um, and also to reach out to those people that are suffering in ways that you know, can help them. Sometimes it's a tiny little thing that can be a catalyst for positive change. Thank you for sharing all of those resources. I am going to put them at the bottom of this podcast and I'm going to add in there that the Worldview Literacy Program was renamed Worldview Explorations and it is a drop-in curriculum that has been taught in high schools and colleges uh, around the world um, for the last couple of years. And those materials are available online along with this really awesome discussion card deck that you can pull and uh, just go through with a group. Um, I really enjoyed that, uh, the, the card deck that just prompts discussion around worldview. I will so, say um, that um, the Institute of Noetic Sciences has not continued to develop the worldview uh, explorations program. And so what I think is really important is for your voice and my voice and, you know, other people who have had this experience to continue to develop it. And, um, you know, I'm looking at the possibility of republishing the materials so that it can stay in its physical form. But there are, there are, um, uh, online resources that people can access. I would also say there are a number of the articles like 
from me to we, um, which was a professional publication in a peer reviewed journal. Uh, those are available on my website, MarilynSchlitz.com, and people can, you know, pull those at, at their will. So, okay. and I know the Stallion Academy is Stallion Spring Academy is where Stallion all Spring those links there for the worldview. Class that they can sign up to take online. So we have resources for you to to dive in deep um, to this program. And I, I'm not surprised about the worldview piece still being developed because the world has changed so much. And as you say, every day we're just overloaded on new information to integrate, and uh, it's quite um, a challenge. But it's also I try to stay in the place. Um, Joseph Chilton Pierce encouraged us to do, which which was to be playful with our reality. That's a good good uh, idea. And the other thing is um, to be strategic. So if we're talking about change makers, if we look at what is happening in America today, and we look at you know the loss of certain privileges that were you know embedded in our constitution, or today you know reading about how the Supreme Court is limiting restrictions on fossil fuels. So actually major setback to the environmental policies of the United States. How that happened is that people have had the long game and they have been strategic about how to implement the kind of changes that they wanted. So if we want to you know, reform and to uh, proliferate some of these positive and life-affirming ideas, it's good to be a chess player. You know, think long-term, think strategic, and pull together with others so that there can be this kind of unified front moving forward. Because I believe these things that have been now instituted can be reversed, but it's going to take um, real strategy. And, and I know we're going now, but that capacity to see systems, to see whole systems and how uh, everything is integrated, interdependent, that does seem to be something on the other side of this uh, worldview shift. And that's a big positive. Is that true? Well, I think, you know, again, I don't know what's on the other side. Okay. Um, <laughs> And I, you know, I live in that sense of wonder and I try to train my brain to um, be adventurous in the multiplicities uh, rather than be overwhelmed by them. So yes, playfulness. I think playfulness. that's a note to end on. Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much. Mom, All right. Thank you. This was great. Okay. See ya. Great.